This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by our Africa and LNG editor Ed Reed and our Asia-Pacific editor Damon Evans. Been away the past couple of weeks, I've just been so busy watching the incredible Derry Girls and crying that it's now over. So very sad, but really... Uh, really, what's been happening uh, has everyone in the oil and gas and energy industry has, has seemingly decided to do all of their events at the same time. You know, it's great. You know, everyone is, is saying it's great to be back, but also time consuming. Ed, you had an experience of that this week as well, didn't you? It does. As you say, Alistair, May seems to be the season, right? Everything is kicking off. The, it just It's just thick and fast, isn't it? They just they just need to settle down, I think. Damon, you, you're, you're okay with that kind of thing so far, anyway. You, don't, you seem to be fairly insulated from having to wonder about conference venues all the time I'm quite jealous to be honest yeah i've not had that experience for uh, two and a half years <laughs> um so i'm kind of envious of um well your, well it's particularly ed's sticky situation this week it's um uh, well, well we'll get into that we'll get into that so let's uh just <laughs> yeah let's just bookmark that for for listeners who are itching to hear about ed's sticky situation um but let's uh let's move on um and we'll kick off this week uh, with uh, well, some 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 interesting moves from the supply chain uh, in the form of uh, wildcat strikes across many installations in the North Sea. Um, I, I was waking up a little rough on Wednesday. I concede, having been at the the Decom North Sea Awards on on Tuesday night. Uh, see, we're right back to that events thing. Uh, look, it's just it's a seamless line through this podcast. It's, it's great. Um, and yeah, I got a message on, on Wednesday morning saying, are you aware of guys downing tools last night? And I was like, oh, right, okay. So one thing leads to another, uh, added to this Telegram chat, which last I checked had just shy of 1,400 members who were made up of people, or at least in part, claiming to be people downing tools across the North Sea in, in unofficial strike action. So the leader of this group, whose name... I won't disclose, but I'm sure everyone involved knows who he is. He said to me, yep, we're fabric maintenance guys on the uh, Total Energies operated Elgin platform, down tools the previous night, uh, and we're with Billfinger UK, the contractor. Then claims that many other platforms have joined them, uh, which did happen. Uh, by Thursday morning, uh, it was said that 16 installations across the North Sea and west of Shetland had been uh, impacted in some way. Hundreds of workers downing tools. We don't know exactly how many, because again, this is unofficial strikes, uh, and that makes it that bit more complicated. But certainly, platforms from uh, operated by Harbour Energy, BP, Total, Taka, and a couple of others, I believe, were all impacted. Um, we had woodworkers involved in ETAP too, but predominantly, this was uh, the contractor Billfinger uh, across, as I say, the North Sea and West of Shetland. So, why are they doing it? Um, quite an interesting offshoot of the windfall tax debate, actually. Um, they're citing oil and gas companies' record profits uh, and the cost of inflation now at a 40-year high. So these guys uh, are wanting or they're seeking £7 an hour increase in their rates off the back of that. Reasonable-ish arguments, I, I think. Um, pretty, I mean, you, know, you see the profits of oil and gas companies, you certainly uh, can't argue with the increasing inflation costs. So, you know, uh, I can see, certainly see the argument. What's interesting is they've deliberately decided not to go via the unions here. Uh, and they've obviously been pretty well organised. Uh, they've clearly planned for this for some time, I think it's fair to say. And the operators have said what they need to say. And basically, there's no implications for safety as a consequence of this action. The trade body, Offshore Energies UK, has said that wildcat action is in nobody's interest as the sector is, you know, in a time right now, it's trying to get more investment going. So 
where do we stand at the moment? Um, as as we record uh, last night, it was announced that Billfinger is joining something called the Energy Services Agreement. That's a collective bargaining deal, um, which was brought into play last year, replaced the Offshore Contractors Association deal, and it sets minimum, t- minimum terms and pay for about 5,000 workers across 14, well now 15, uh, services companies in the North Sea. And Billfinger has controversially been absent from that deal in the past. They have said they've always been in negoti- negotiations with unions despite that and offered competitive wages. However, they've now signed up, which on the one hand means they're now, you know, speaking with unions and their employee representative committee on pay for these guys. On the other hand, uh, workers have told me, and and this has been denied by Unite the Union, I should say, um, but workers have told me that I've suggested that this gives Billfinger some leeway to say, well, we're bound by the ESA now. We want to give you £7 an hour. But we can't because we're bound by the terms of the ESA. As I said, the union uh, has denied that. Said, no, they signed up. Um, you know, well, I should clarify what the what the workers have suggested is that they have requested to sign up to the ESA, um, but they're not actually signed up yet. But there's some ambiguity as to whether or not that's the case. The union has said no, they're signed up. They're bound by it. Um, so I guess one one other quick thing I'd note, um, when that deal was announced last year, there was included within that a mechanism to. Um, a rate adjustment mechanism, which apparently kind of automatically calculates uh, salaries using a formula based on average inflation and oil and gas prices. So will they get £7 an hour? I doubt it very much, but perhaps something, you know, more than what they have now. As things stand, fluid situation, many of the guys say they're standing strong, but equally, you know, uh, we also have a piece up today with Bernus Paul, employment experts, setting out that guys who are taking unofficial strike action are putting themselves ultimately at risk of dismissal too. So where we're going to be in a few days' time, we don't know, but uh, that's how the lay of the land looks at the moment. It's quite um, an unusual situation, uh, as I say, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, that question about the union seems seems really interesting. Uh, and and mm. you, 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 the, the, you mentioned, I think, that, that they hadn't done it through unions, so it kind of feels unofficial. Is there a sense that have the unions sort of failed in some way to kind of get ahead of this uh, kind of issue? Obviously, I mean, you know, as you say, it's, it's, it's widespread. It's clearly a sort of a, a wide ranging problem. What in what I mean, it, it kind of feels like the unions are supposed to be there, obviously speaking for the workers in these sort of negotiations. Mm. So so what's what's happened to, to kind of lead to this point where, you know, the, the workers are in one, one sense going one way and the unions are, I suppose, kind of essentially left out of it? Well, uh, it's, it's a very good question. Um, so I, I guess, as I said, we're on this Telegram chat and we do see some of the comments on there. Um, and how do I put this diplomatically? It did seem that it, at least some of them, and certainly the guy that seems to be leading this, uh, has uh, seems to be disgruntled a little bit with the unions. And they seem to be suggesting, what they're suggesting in a way, is that, oh, the unions don't represent us. You know, we want to do our own thing. There has been an instance of that, I think, once or twice before in the North Sea, um, but ultimately, uh, I, I suppose there is a sense that, oh, well, we can get more out of it if we do it ourselves. But I, I guess the, the important thing that, that people need to realise is that if you haven't in this country balloted properly uh, and you're not doing this by sanctioned action via union, you are exposing yourself to pretty drastic consequences in terms of your employment. So, you know, I, I, I do wonder to what extent can this go on without official, you know, union involvement. And what happened last night when Billfinger said that they'd signed up to the ESA, 
there's a joint statement with Unite, the union, the largest offshore union in the UK, who said, who, who they, they both kind of said, well, this has happened. We're now going to go back and discuss. There's been an agreement reached. We're now asking you guys to to go back to work whilst we work the, the terms out. So, I mean, yeah, it does seem that some guys are a bit disgruntled. Um, I think it's fair to say. Um, I guess the unions do need to be reasonable with employers um, and can't always get exactly what the workers want. I, I'm, I'm assuming compromise and, and fair discussion between both sides is just kind of the nature of the beast. And I guess if some people see that they're not getting, oh, we're not getting exactly what we want, then perhaps that's been an element of what's happened here. I think it also, as I said earlier, you know, it, it, the, 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 there's record profits from uh, these oil and gas companies. And, and, and some of the guys that we're talking about, fabric maintenance, rope access, um, you know, it's it's skilled labor, but it, it certainly probably wouldn't be the kind of pay that you would expect to see a direct, you know, uh, you know, a, a direct BP contractor or a direct Total contractor. You know, they'll come on these platforms and they'll be on huge salaries by comparison. So, I, I wonder that's speculation, but I wonder if there's an element of that as well. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's quite a tricky one. I do wonder to what extent can this go on if you know if it's not officially sanctioned ultimately. I mean, I mean and, and and it could also well, how long can it go on for Billfinger as well? You know because you know there, there are other contractors out there too. So uh, it, it's a bit of a problem for all sides really. Um, we will keep a close eye to see how it plays out. But yeah, it's really quite unusual, I must say. And a look at that, I've talked myself to the end of that segment. Wonderful. Okay, uh, so uh, I think that will park our, our wildcat revolution there. Uh, next up, we're going to go into a, a tiny nation with a giant CCS project. Energy Voice presents Invest ABZ. Join us as we lead the conversation on Aberdeen's future as Europe's energy hub. This hybrid event, taking place online and at the Chester Hotel in Aberdeen on Thursday the 26th of May, looks to answer the question, why Aberdeen? We'll showcase the innovative leaders and businesses that make investment in the city's future a compelling proposition, covering topics such as technology and R&D, talent and skills, growth sectors and opportunities, and the future of oil and gas in Aberdeen. Our expert panels will share their vision for the city's evolution in a net zero world, and we'll celebrate the people, skills and technologies on our doorstep, exploring how that local expertise leads the way in the UK and globally. Whether you're part of Aberdeen's diverse business community, an investor considering greater involvement in this thriving market, or a representative of local or national government, InvestABZ will provide essential insight into the region's potential. For free virtual or physical registration, visit investabz.com. So, uh, Damon, further developments fit with this uh, project, the CCS project in East Timor. Uh, tell us the latest. Yeah, it seems to be picking up speed quite rapidly. Uh, Santos, which is uh, Australia's second largest oil and gas company, they have, um, they're accelerating plans to decommission the, the Bay Winden field offshore East Timor uh, in, between, in the Timor Sea between uh, northern Australia and, and, and the tiny nation of East Timor, as you put it. And that is looking set to get decommissioned by December. They are looking to disconnect uh, the floating storage and offloading unit, and they're looking to decontaminate that unit before it gets shipped to Turkey for decommissioning. And, and I was speaking to uh, a source close to the project recently, and, and something kind of um, you know, perked my interest. He, uh, the source said Santos is keen to pull forward decommissioning activities as 
There is a lot of money at stake to get the production equipment removed as soon as possible with plans to transform Beowinden into a giant CCS facility. And, uh, and that was really interesting to me because we'd heard about these plans for a giant CCS facility that can store 10 million tons a year of uh, carbon dioxide. And the, the, big, the big driver behind it is because Santos is developing a, a, a high CO2 gas field off northern Australia called the Barossa Development. And that is going to be used to backfill the Darwin LNG export plant in northern Australia, which is currently fed by Beowinden. But Beowinden's uh, nearly exhausted. I mean, there's probably still a few years left of reserves in there. You probably could keep it going another 10 years, maybe, you know, but, you know, it's definitely a, a bit more left in it, but not enough to fill a, an LNG export plant. And it's not really economic to keep the plant going. So they really need to backfill that plant. Now, here's the rub. The, the, the biggest customers and the people involved in Barossa are the South Koreans and the Japanese. And, and they've got net zero pledges and decarbonization ambitions now. So th th there's a struggle with the finances in those countries if there's no kind of CCS or something done about the carbon dioxide issue at Barossa. So Santos originally said, well, you know, we're going to get this CCS project up and running. And it didn't look like it would be ready for when Barossa started. And then we we're kind of like, oh, you know, they're greenwashing a bit. It's not, you know, maybe they might do it. Maybe they might not do it. But, but now it looks like they've got to do it. And it seems like, you know, they're really going full speed ahead with it. And we could see this project start to take, you know, concrete shape within, within a year or two. I mean, they're looking at taking a final investment decision next year officially. I spoke to the head of the Timorese regulator last week, and he mentioned the end of 2022. Uh, the Timorese regulators in full support of this. They're really keen to have a, a carbon dioxide storage facility. I won't say waste dump, <laughs> but on their doorstep. Some people do say that. Um, some people have seen it as kind of carbon colonialism, mm. like, you know, East Timor, a poor kind of impoverished country at, at the edge of Southeast Asia, importing other people's carbon. But but they see it as a way to earn revenue and um, and a good opportunity to be involved in this new generation of business. And maybe it might attract investors to East Timor because they can offset their carbon emissions with this CCS facility. They can also earn carbon credits, they hope. And... Um, and I believe Santos is looking to get support from the Australian government, and there might even be a way to tie it into the, the Australian carbon credit system. But I'm, I'm pretty sure Santos is banking on government support from, from Canberra. I mean, it's a $1.7 billion uh, project that's estimated to cost to build, according to Reistad Energy estimates. And um, I think the break-even price is around $60, $70 per tonne of carbon, and the carbon credit is trading around thirty dollars in Australia. So, you know, if they get if if, if they get the Australian government support, then it should be um, you know a pretty good deal for for Santos. And I think East Timor, obviously, they won't be paying anything. Mm. So they're just taking the risks of, you know, I suppose the technical risks. You know, there are technical risks when you do these kind of things. Maybe with the the pipeline through deep waters, etc. Um, but well, the other interesting thing is that um, I think East Timor is, they're going to lose the revenues when, when Beowinden stops producing. 
I think they were getting about 200 million a month in the first quarter of this year. But once it stops, that obviously means the revenue is going to stop. And we, we don't know publicly what East Timor's deal is and whether they actually have hammered out the commercial terms. So, yeah, it's, it, it, it's an interesting development. And, um, yeah, something I thought wouldn't happen so fast. And it looks like it's, it's going at full speed. So, yeah interesting to see where does the it's interesting to hear the different sides there the carbon colonialism um side and then also the 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 business aspects of it i mean and i think you've talked in this podcast before about the the ngos picking up on this but i mean i I guess what 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 it reminds me of a little bit is um you know we have projects up here in in aberdeenshire actually in other parts of the uk The, the aim is to um you know import carbon from parts of Europe, for example, and, and store that in the North Sea. Um, and that's a long-term CCUS business, you know, um, and, and that could be a success. It could be a big success. And I'm sure that that, that sounds like a similar model to what's being proposed for East Timor. But I mean, I mean, yeah, where do you get the sense in terms of the balance of opinion, um, in terms of is this a good idea or not? Because I know, as I said in the past, we've I think we've talked about the fact that the East Timorese uh, perhaps not having the experience effectively to to adequately assess the risks of this kind of project. Yeah, I think that's the concern. And I think not not just the technical risk, but the commercial risk. What what are they getting from this? I mean, clearly Santos are desperate for this to go ahead. And, and clearly they've done some, they signed the memorandum of understanding with East Timor's regulator at COP26 in Glasgow, actually. And, um, and it'd be interesting to know what's happening behind closed doors and how good a deal... Is, is team or less, you know, are they getting screwed over or are they getting a good deal out of this? Because, you know, obviously Santos, they, they don't really, I think East Timor has a strong bargaining position, you know, because they, they could, well, I presume they could, the regulator could stop, stop it going ahead. Although the licensing and regulations around CCS projects in Southeast Asia are very, um, not stringent as in Europe, you know, you don't have to go through a lot of, the same procedures so an operator has is a lot easier license to operate here but um yeah i, I mean my sense is and, and what you said the the business case for for storing carbon you know when i was talking to the regulator it seemed like you know yeah maybe they've got gonna have a great commercial opportunity here you know the the japan south korea they want to send their waste somewhere you've got all these lng projects and industries in northern australia that need to send their their co2 somewhere and um yeah, I, uh, in terms of what's happening in, on the ground in East Timor and what people think, I don't think they probably really know or understand the media's kind. There's no free media there anymore. That was clamped down on mm. a couple of years ago. Um, you have like one or two NGOs um, like critically analyzing this CCS project. And the big thing over there is the Sunrise LNG project. They, they want to develop the Sunrise gas field and have a greenfield LNG export plant. That's more the, more the thing that takes the news. And when I spoke to the regulator, he, he was kind of optimistic that because of having this CCS facility, they would find it easier to, to attract finance or investors for the eventual development of Greater Sunrise, which which 
remains perpetually stalled. I mean, it seems like a really interesting project. And I think obviously we're going to kind of see, see, see more of these sort of CCS, CCUS projects kind of popping up, right? And, and, and obviously it would be remiss of me not to, uh, not to mention that we are in fact doing a CCUS tracking transition uh, episode, I think in September that is looking at Asia. So uh, tune in for that. But I suppose kind of coming back to that kind of question about sort of the practicalities, right? I mean, so you, so you said, I think you said, Damon, that it was, it was going to be capable of storing 10 million tonnes a year of, of CO2. Is that going to be all kind of taken up by the the, the, the the gas that's going into the LNG plant? Or is or is there a chance for sort of like a merchant facility? I mean, Alistair, you know, you, you kind of, you know, drew in that kind of parallel of the that kind of growing trade of, of, of being able to kind of ship CO2 around. And, I, and I, you, you could see how that might work, right, for, I know, as you say, sort of South Korea, Japan, who are clearly kind of looking at these kind of net zero targets. Is there a potential for them to essentially export CO2 in, I don't know, presumably specialized tankers of some sort to, say, East Timor for storage in the same way? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's what the, the regulator in East Timor was quite excited about. I mean, he was saying, you know, we're, we're, this is something East Timor can own and claim and we can get first mover advantage in this region. And um, to answer your other question, Ed, I think the facility for the Barossa gas LNG project, that will take up about 2, 2.3 million tons per year. So you have quite a lot of spare capacity for a merchant hub. Um, you know, eventually the max would be 10 million tons per year capacity. I think the overall total storage is 200 million tons per year. So 20, 25 years, it will be full. But, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of room there. Um, yeah, so, I mean, they're quite excited about it. And um, it's, a, it's a good opportunity. Yeah, I suppose it is a good commercial opportunity for them. And they compare it. So they, 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 there's a project in off Norway, is it? run by Equinor, Northern, Northern Lights, Lights that's right, cross-border yeah. CCS project. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of comparisons to that and, and they, they, are, they envisage something similar to that and tankers, you know, bring in liquid CO2 and store in it. And so, yeah, I mean, optimistic, actually. Shouldn't... Yeah, yeah just hope they get a good deal. You know, they've been... Mm they've been done over in the past but which surprises me because they're very aggressive against the australian government over sunrise yet on this they're, they're very accommodating with santos so maybe they are getting some good deal let's, let's yeah. look forward it's a, to it it sounds like a Sounds like a good project. It's just the it's the commercial terms, isn't, isn't it? Uh, always that we should that we should keep keep an eye on. Indeed. Okay. Well, we'll keep an eye on that one. Uh, thanks, Damon. Uh, next up, we'll be discussing Ed's adventures at the Africa Energy Summit with the, a pinch of Gordon Ramsay mixed in. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice live app featuring a personalized feed, and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. 
Ed, it's, it's just typical, isn't it? You finally land a table at Gordon Ramsay's Head and Street restaurant, and what do you find? People gluing themselves to the walls. You, you can't get a decent meal anywhere these days. Indeed, indeed. I, and and I, I heard a rumour that it might not even have been glue. Oh. I mean, I don't I don't know who to trust. Anymore. Oh, wow. Anyway, so, so, so to explain somewhat, I feel, as we, we've kind of uh, jumped in at the end point of uh, yeah, this particular... <laughs> uh, uh, debacle. So I, I this week I went to the the Africa Energy Summit uh, in in London. Um, obviously, always a uh, it's a it's you know it's it's still a delight to get out of the house to kind of go and sort of bump into people. Uh, you know, drink some coffee, eat some pano chocolate. I mean, you can't you can't argue with that, can you? So um, got there sort of bright and early Tuesday morning, uh, and I found the street had been cordoned off. I thought this is a bit unusual. Had to kind of go around the highways and byways. Eventually, I found uh, an Extinction Rebellion protest in front of the uh, hotel where the conference was being held. They um, some some climbers, some in, some free spirits had, had climbed up the facade and onto the sort of little overhanging balcony. Uh, they'd still smoke. Uh, they'd daubed the facade with. Uh, it looked like oil. I'm not sure if it was oil. But it was, you know, and there was a lot of, um, you know, objections to to the idea of uh, of the Africa Energy Summit. So after a while, after some degree of negotiations with a policewoman and a security guard and, a, you know, the toings and froings, I eventually managed to get in. Um, but obviously it was a bit of a, a bit of a, 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 a curious start. Then sort of further uh, problematized, should we say, by some uh, Extinction Rebellion people who had managed to get inside the building and then glued themselves to the foyer. Um, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't, uh, they, 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 they didn't get down into the conference room, but, uh, you know, we heard sort of, you know, banging and shouting. And eventually, I think they had to get the special, apparently there's a special police team who turn up to debond people from uh, things that they've attached themselves to. So, you know, if uh, you're thinking of a career change, maybe the, uh, the, the, the debonding team, just a thought. The debonding team? Well, well, I mean, is that, is that like, can they do, can they get rid of some of the pictures on my walls? I mean, I mean what, what do we think? Probably. I mean, you know, nothing, nothing Nothing stops these guys. I mean, you know, so once they turn up, so yeah, so so that was a you know, obviously, you know, a lot of discussion in in the hall about, you know, the the, the protests, and obviously there was a lot of people saying, you know, uh, these people don't understand, you know, the issues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But at the same time, you know, there there was also a lot of talk about ESG, right? About you know emissions, about how we try and sort of you know get some sort of social license to operate and that sort of thing. So. It was, you know, it was, it was, it was an interesting uh, start to the conference. Um, and then the following day, um, there, there, there was a plan for a gala dinner, uh, as you say, uh, Alistair, at, uh, at Gordon Ramsay's Hedden Street restaurant. Um, and I actually, I, I don't tell anyone, but I, I actually, I actually didn't go on the second day. Oh man! Um, so I, I know, I know. Just, just keep that under your hats, all right? But so I was, I was sitting down to to have a spot of supper, you know, at home. Uh, when I got a a, a, a text from these uh, environmental protesters saying we've just glued ourselves to Gordon Ramsay's uh, restaurant. How about that? As you do. So I was like, oh, God, you know, fine. So I kind of dragged myself back to the computer and, and you know, wrote something up about it. Um, so so essentially, the uh, I think there, there were six people had glued themselves to the window, to the pavement, um, to various bits of the furniture. Um, and then as a result, uh, because I think there was a, 
there was a risk of people sort of trying to step over protesters and you know what happens if you stand on their on their hands or something apparently that's as, a no as you do <laughs> so they said you know essentially that we can't go ahead with the gala dinner so it was cancelled and you know there were just these people um there outside gordon ramsay's restaurant for a while just glued to stuff or not so there, there was the, the next day there was a rumor that, that actually perhaps they were they, they hadn't actually glued themselves to it they were just <laughs> pretending all what is along. this so yeah, so the, the whole thing was um, was 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 a bit of a shame, um, and it was you know it was uh, yeah. So, but I mean, I think the thing I think the other, the other thing about it was that inside the hall there was a real sense of of optimism about the industry. You know, I think you know people were talking about exploration in ways that you know I haven't seen for a while. You know, people were, you know there were some some seismic guys who were saying. You know, they're sort of, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of, you know, record uh, record quarters. People talking about drilling rigs and 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 the difficulties of of, of getting uh, getting a deep water rig these days. People were talking about exploration. You know, obviously the you know two big finds off uh, off Namibia this year. There's more going. Uh, so Shell's drilling a well off uh, Sao Tome at the moment. Uh, Eni's coming back to drill off. Uh, Mozambique this year. People are talking about uh, drilling off South Africa. So, I mean, that's the thing. It was it was very much a sort of a tale of of of, of uh, two uh, two halves. I mean, on the one hand, you know, environmental protesters who really I, th I think you know have seen a kind of a real swelling of, of of interest over the last two years, and the energy industry, which has had you know a bad two years, it's had a bad seven years really. I mean, you know, like you know, with the last kind of you know boom. 2014 2013 who can say but there was a sense that you know kind of the 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 oil industry is back and it's uh yeah it was it's it's, it's a tough not to to kind of square and i think you know that well there there is clearly that sort of interest in exploration i think you know just a sort of a kind of a closing takeaway i think there's still a big question about you know if you find oil in big quantities can you commercialize it right i mean i think there are going to be challenges you know you know people have said you know venus offshore in namibia might be the maybe the biggest find ever discovered. People have been sort of saying, well, there's been some hyperbole around, you know, maybe is it 11 billion barrels. Uh, there was some, so there's some big numbers, but in terms of financing, it could uh, it could be tricky. So yeah, it's uh, it's all go. Interesting. I've just been scrolling through Gordon Ramsay's Twitter to see if he mentioned the, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, no, it, it, uh, I was, I was reading your piece on it. It does, it does seem, uh, as you say, that people are, are more optimistic. And, and as you mentioned there, the thing that took my eye, just because I've been writing about it quite frequently recently, is that you know the, the global rig market has been through um, a, a bit of a tough time, I think it's fair to say, in recent years. But now, now... Uh, rates are going up. Parts of the entire, you know, I, th I think, I think drill ship segment is, is is sold out or close to sold out, um, and uh, and yeah, everyone North Sea to South Africa are talking about how difficult it is to to get a rig these days. Cnoc touched on that. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the Chinese, I think they've got plans in uh, in Gabon. Uh, and they've got some uh, some 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 plans sort of up in the sort of the AGC Profond area. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I think I think you know it was it was a sort of a widespread feeling. I mean, uh, and it's got to be said, right? It's been it's been a tough uh, tough few years for you know. I mean, obviously for the operators, but you know for the you know you know drilling companies, the number of bankrupts we 
bankruptcies we've seen, you know, seismic companies. It feels like seismic companies have been through, you know, just a, a really terrible time. So, yeah, it was it was it was kind of encouraging to kind of see this kind of going ahead. And and obviously, I suppose, you know, you're not going to shoot seismic if you don't think you're going to drill the well. So there is a sense that, you know, there is this kind of newfound interest in exploration, isn't there? And I think, you know, clearly, you know, that's kind of what the industry is going to be crying out for. Uh, you know, there hasn't been enough investment in in the oil and gas industry for the last say seven years um and we're sort of starting to see the problem with that right where's the uh where's where is future production going to come from yeah and uh, i think i think uh, the, the the other questions that you mentioned as well it sounds like there was quite a big focus i mean it seems like every conference now that we're we're in uh, has obviously got the environmental element of it but it sounds like that was a massive kind of Maybe not even a sidebar, but maybe a main kind of topic of of what was discussed there too. The 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 environmental challenges associated with, well, not just the financing, but I guess just more broadly, there'll be, you know, anywhere you try to develop an eleven billion barrel oil field, there probably will be an NGO or two that takes uh, notice of that too. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it, it it's going to be a challenge, isn't it? I mean, I think you know we. I think you know in you know looking at places I mean Nigeria springs to, to springs to mind right there have been some you know some really sort of uh shoddy practices in the past oil spills flaring things like that and clearly it's it's well past time that this kind of comes to an end so I mean I think there was I mean I think the, the kind of I think that was that was the kind of the, the sort of the tempering comments was that you know, obviously in Africa, there is this challenge around the energy transition with 600 million people still lacking access to electricity. None of the people uh, lack access to clean cooking fuels. So there is this kind of real challenge about how you deliver that in a way that is, you know, say climate friendly. And so, though, I mean, obviously, you know, people speaking to people inside the conference, you know, they're obviously they're people in the industry, so they would say this to an extent, but you know, really sort of saying we need, you know, fossil fuels to be able to kind of move this forward to, to, to try and solve this problem. But to try and do that in a way that is, uh, you know, kind of brings in kind of decarbonisation, right, that, you know, brings in perhaps, you know, renewable energy for platforms to, you know, reduce flaring, to, to, to try and kind of get ahead of these kind of complaints, um, which, you know, we need. Um, but I think, there was there was a really interesting panel from the the Angolans from uh, the uh, ANPG the Angolan regulator, and they were saying, look, we, we wholeheartedly plan to increase production. You know, so they 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 hit peak production in about two thousand and eight. They got up to about one point nine. They've 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 lost about five hundred thousand barrels a day since then, but. They, they, they put a really strong uh, position forward to say, look, we need to increase production because we need this to drive economic prosperity, to drive the energy transition, to try and, you know, to try and elevate people's lives in Angola, right? I mean, it, obviously, there's, you know, there's, it's still the kind of the hangover from the Civil War. There are still these incredible challenges in Angola and, and obviously other places. And... It's hard to say you have these natural resources under the ground, but you can't develop them, right? You have some of the poorest people in the world, but you cannot access, uh, you know, the uh, the you know the the oil and gas trade. I mean, that would be a really really difficult thing to say. And you know, people people in the conference were pointing out that there were. Should we say a shortage of uh, of of black faces uh, protesting outside the outside the event? Right? Mm. They, you know that. 
there was there were there were people from Cambridge, there were people from Sheffield, but there were not you know people in the main from Africa. Obviously, there were challenges around you know flying in environmental activists from Africa, and obviously that's kind of you know a, a, there are there are still going to be you know local activists who who oppose oil and gas development, but. It's uh, it's it, it's the sort of thing you can only really do from. It feels like a position of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. We have the ability to open the fridge and get a cold drink, turn on the lights, have heating, whatever. A lot of people uh, in Africa lack that, and it's hard to say that they can't do that. Uh, oh, they can only get that from solar panels. So yeah, it was it was it was it was very interesting. Yeah, no, that's it's an interesting one to contemplate for sure. I think it's a, a point well made. It, um, but yeah, no, we'll we'll park that there for now. And that is it. This latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you to Ed and to Damon for joining me. I've been Alsa Thomas, and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.